The world as we know it has fundamentally changed. What was once considered the future of work is here now. We are operating in an all-digital, work-from-anywhere world. More and more consumers are supporting brands that align with their personal values. It's the values-driven firms that will rebound sooner and grow faster in this new world. Salesforce has partnered with Singapore Community Radio to bring you this podcast. We want to explore the opportunities and the challenges of this new world. We want to talk about the ways in which we will work going forward, how businesses can be a platform for change, and how technology will continue to impact the world. We have some amazing thought leaders, executives, and community advocates joining us, and we hope it sparks some inspiration and innovation for you. To learn more about us, you can head to our blog at salesforce.com/ap/blog. Welcome to the Future of Work Now podcast. My name is Jess O'Reilly. I'm from Salesforce, and today we're going to unpack more about tech in hyperspeed. I'm joined by Dr. Aisha Khanna. She's the co-founder and CEO of Addo AI. Aisha. So excited to have you here and have this discussion. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. The topic of tech in hyperspeed—it it could be lots of different things. So let's unpack lots of different subjects because everything about you is interesting for me. So <laughs> we'll we'll go on a journey、um, in the next couple or forty minutes or so. But before we dive into some of the the topics, I wanted to the audience to get a sense of who you are because your accolades and your experience is just pretty impressive. So do you want to just tell us a bit about your story? Yes,、yeah, so、um, I'm CEO of Addo AI. It's、um, a very specialist data science and artificial intelligence firm, and what we do is we provide advice and also implement intelligent data platforms for very large companies, some of the largest telcos, hospitals, and financial services, and not only in Asia but also the Middle East and in the U.S. And primarily, what we do is that we help people. Leverage data as a strategic asset. They have all this gold、mm. lying in their company, and I feel so bad when I see it not used.、Yeah. And, and so, what we go in is we organize it into a format that's usable, and then we apply machine learning to automate their processes and bring their costs down to improve their customer centricity and personalize services for their customers. And finally, once they have all of this, they can. Really think out of the box and imagine new ways to present their products and services. I have a great team;、um, they're all much smarter than me, <laughs> and、um, I just—we all love what we do. We see so much potential, and we are delighted to work with clients. And when they serve their customers better, that's、mm. all they want. That's all we want. No, it's such a fulfilling <laughs> experience when you can see your customers, you know, achieving or overachieving what they had expected to. Absolutely. To so. Obviously, a really impressive、um, business and you know, purpose for for being. But I actually think your story beyond your business is pretty impressive as well. So, do you want to just share a bit about your journey as to the different evolutions of of life you've gone through?、Uh, yes. So, I was born in Pakistan in Lahore, and I grew up in、um, you know a, a very intellectually liberal household. We talked a lot about political science, which was、wow. my father's interest, and English literature, which was my mother's interest. And there was a great desire because Pakistan is in an emerging market to do something that improves 
the accessibility of services for the emerging middle class. Mm. So there was a great sense that sometimes there is inequity in life, injustice in life, and we should all try to do something about it. And those interesting philosophical and uh, humanities-led principles form the foundation of my technology and AI building. And that's a very unusual way to end up where I did. Mm. But then when I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, that's where I met a lot of Eastern Europeans from Romania and Russia and Estonia. And they had a very different sense of math and science than I did. For me, and I'm sure many Asian listeners can relate to this, you know, physics, math, it was all about getting the right answer. Mm. And I'm very good at taking exams, <laughs> which doesn't mean much, unfortunately, one realizes, because it doesn't mean you have a you have an understanding of the subject. You have joy for the subject. Mm. But when I went there, I saw that they would talk about poetry in one breath and number theory in the second breath wow. and computer science in one breath and then surrealism in the third breath. And I realized that there is not this chasm between humanities and the sciences. If anything, they're closer than ever. They're about mm. tinkering, curiosity, reaching an approximation to the truth. And that's how I got interested in math and then computer science. And I think it was the most wonderful way to enter that subject. Uh, upon graduation, I went to New York because we all did, let's <laughs> be honest, in those days. Now, I think people go to Silicon Valley. Yes. And I ended up working with my friend's consulting firm on Wall Street. And I did my master's in operations research at Columbia, but also I did a lot of work uh, on trading systems, algorithmic systems, and I was a software engineer. And all my family wondered, because you know they were not technologists. They were like, what on earth are you doing? Mm. You know, This is not what we had in mind for you, <laughs> or we thought you had in mind for yourself. Because technology and AI were not as sexy as they are today. Yeah. At that time, it was um, you know considered kind of back office. But I had fallen in love, and I could see how it was going to define the future. Mm. So then after spending uh, some time on Wall Street, I wanted to work with bigger and bigger data systems. And I wanted to think about how it affects human life. And that's when way before smart cities were mean, I thought about citywide data systems. And I started my PhD in smart cities and the application of artificial intelligence to urban environments and specifically urban transportation. And that was so useful to me because I, as I pointed out, was naively optimistic about technology. But my professors said precisely that, you're naively optimistic and there is a balanced way of looking at it. There are many implications of technology that affect society and human life and human agency mm. that you must take into account. So that um, sabbatical to do my PhD mid-career was fabulous. It's hard, yeah. a long time with two kids, <laughs> but um, it really sharpened my thinking, my critical thinking, which all of us learn as kids, but then happily throw away when we become adults. Um, and then we came to Singapore and I tried a couple of things and failed disastrously. But then I went back to my first love, which was, you know, statistics and technology. And that's how I decided there is no better place than Singapore, which is a smart nation that is has governance, you know? So it has the prudence that you need when you think about developing technology systems. It was the sweet spot that my Wall Street into PhD 
had taught me mm. that use technology to amplify human life, but do it with accountability. I love that. And it's just amazing when you look back in, in moments of your life, you're like, what? why does this make sense? And now you yes. look back and tell us that story. <laughs> it all makes sense because it's gotten you to this amazing position where you are today. And I love how you talk about like the human, human aspect of technology, because that's something that we sometimes miss, right? And that makes sense now that I hear about this amazing initial experience you had at Harvard with the you know, the, yes. the different <laughs> people that you met there. It's, it's you know, a clear sense of how your, your past shapes who you are today. So thanks for giving us that. And, <laughs> and I think all the listeners here would agree that that's a pretty impressive uh, journey to get to where you are today. So when we, when we look at the state of play today, um, we all know that we're living in a very new and interesting normal. I'd love to get your opinion of what you think, you know, the world of work is today and just in general like what are you seeing about the world where you're like this makes sense this doesn't what are the trends that are kind of resonating with you at the moment the the trend has been ongoing for a long time which is that technology is now at the forefront of any decision that you make that means that it's not the back office that your team, regardless of what you do, whether you are opening a restaurant, you're making a film, or you're running a deep tech company, you need to have your business people sit together with your technology people. And that's the only way you can form any kind of product or service. And people have realized that. The companies, who have, there are instances of companies who have thrived in the pandemic and those that have failed mm. and those who have thrived have been able to leverage technology to be agile resilient and adaptive but now there's something new as well the 21st century team has a new player so there's the business person there's a technology person and now there is the machine itself and we have to learn to work with this machine. It could be an AI agent that is supporting you in your daily decision making. It could literally be a robot in your warehouse. Um, you know, and what we need to understand is that this AI brings something to the table. It brings the ability to mine huge amounts of data, which are now available and it is cheaper to compute on them. And it is able to not only give insights, but also make recommendations because mm -hmm. of neural networks and deep neural networks. But we have to treat it like a colleague. And people think when I say that, I mean, oh, you should hug it and, you know, just like believe everything it says. It's quite the contrary. Think about your normal office relationship. You know, you go to the watering hole or to get coffee and your colleague says something. And you're quite open to it. You're like, oh, that's not a bad idea. Or sometimes your colleague says something and your instinct says, no, nah, that's not going to work for my mm. business. And that is precisely how, as humans, we work and how we must work with machines. When they recommend something, instead of saying, oh, that's a machine, it must know what it's doing, even though humans like Aisha programmed it, um, we have to be open to its recommendations and in a very agile way experiment. And that's why you experiment different ideas with customer groups, but also be critical. Mm. You must also think, is this biased? Does this not sound right? Um, you know, is there something instinctively or strategically or culturally that I think this will not sit well with my customers? And when that happens, you have to go back and you have to look at the numbers again. You have to rethink it. And Usually what I find is that teams vacillate between two extremes. I love the AI or I hate the AI, but the fact is if it's going to live with you for the next hundreds of years, we have to have a more balanced relationship with mm. it. 
And um, this trifecta is a 21st century team. And those who literally make every team have these three pillars, they are the ones that will succeed in the future. That is the future of work. Mm. And I think that the term, the 21st century team, is just such a good way of encapsulating, you know, the the true north of, of where we need to move to. I, I love the conversations I have with customers when we're presenting Salesforce, which has, you know, AI embedded through the whole platform. And our big thing is like, we're democratizing AI. It doesn't have to be where you go, oh, this is AI, mm. you know, it's it's part of your every day. But um, I do love when it's like, oh, I'm just going to press that button and that thing's going to do my job for me. It's like, well, we don't want that to happen. That's right. And the criticality of thinking, I think, is a a really important point. So this does actually segue me into the the point I was going to say is I was at an event the other week. Um, our CEO actually was in Singapore and he was presenting to a, a group, a small group of customers. And one of the people put their hand up and said, I don't believe in AI. We've been investing in all this money and it doesn't work. And I'm sure you in your field get asked this question all the time. So going right back to basics, how do you just look at someone and go, this is totally wrong and this is this is my advice to you? What, what do you typically say? Well, the first thing is I don't try to convince them by giving the attributes of the AI. Uh, what I try to do is try to have a conversation about their business and their goals and their challenges and who they look at as competitors. Then based on that, we once I understand that, I'm able to recommend to them how AI could help them in those goals. Sometimes they may not even realize the potential of what their current company is possible, mm -hmm. uh, is capable of doing. And in that sense, then the next thing is you give them some provocations from analogous companies and say, well, can you imagine this? Can you imagine that? It's an exercise in mutual education between two humans. And then they tell me a little bit about how they see their customers. It's very valuable what they have. I could, I could never be able to have that kind of insight, um, no matter how much AI I used. And then I tell them by understanding it, where the data and AI could help them in that and where they are limited in their thinking, we actually go a step further and we educate them on the basics of AI. Because I just don't believe this is something that can be done in isolation. It's not like three people speaking, two people speaking different languages can come together. We need a way to communicate with each mm -hmm. other. And we both need some basic understanding of each other's fields. So what this means is that we spend a lot of time educating our clients, uh, even and they educate us. And that is the right way to go about it, where, uh, you know, everyone, regardless of who they are, how senior they are, what gender they are, what interests they have, they must learn some of the basics of this new technology that is literally the third member of your team. And if that happens, then you know, you lead them to the goal through AI and that has always worked. So then after a while, then you set some metrics that are reasonable, not magical pony flying yep. <laughs> just because you saw it in a movie or um, on the cover of a magazine. You say, well, if it's automation that reduces time of resolution, uh, that increases net promoter score of customer satisfaction, that reduces human error. And these are measurable ways of showing how artificial intelligence can improve the personalization and engagement of your product and therefore your bottom line. Mm. And I think that's the only way to do it. There, the, any other way is um, will only result in technology for technology's sake. Yep. That makes no sense. 
I've heard you say once, and I've repeated this since I, I heard you say it, is like sometimes it's not that the answers are wrong, it's that the questions we're asking are not the right questions. And sometimes I think the way I understand your way of trying to make AI relevant to this 21st century team is by you know, stripping it back to the basics. What's the goals of the business and how can technology get there? So I, I do love that phrase though, and I've, I've definitely used it a couple of times. So we, when we talk about technology, let's kind of pull it into the landscape of Singapore. Cause what I'm interested to understand is like, how do you feel we sit in, in this whole technology landscape? Are we ahead of the rest in terms of technology adoption and innovation? Or do you feel like we've got some strides to, to get there? Well, Singapore is definitely uh, at the forefront. You know, this is a very dynamic, competitive space. And so uh, there, there are winners and losers that are going back, you know, they're switching places all the time. And there are plenty of indices that rank different cities and countries. But what I like about Singapore is that it keeps its eye on the long run, that um, it has slowly but surely invested in deep technologies, but also the talent that's required. And I particularly love the fact that its emphasis is on creating a digital economy that benefits its citizens. Mm -hmm. And so it is very citizen-centric, its approach. Whether it is saying that there should be artificial intelligence and 5G deployment, it makes great efforts to make sure that training is subsidized, that everybody feels they're a part of this evolution, that small, medium enterprises have the ability to have um, help from CTOs, from um, platforms, from AI-powered vendor products that they can afford and that they can understand. And that even when they build a smart city, uh, you know, the reason they call themselves a smart nation, even though it's known as the world's smartest city, mm. is because they want to take it away from this notion of technology infrastructure only, but make it far more human-centric and put the focus back on citizens. So when you do that, then you are making sure that with your technology infrastructure, you have talent development. And the third thing is that obviously you have governance. Mm. And that's, as I said earlier, that's very important to me because I think what they do exceptionally well is a balanced approach. Um, that first of all, they, they feel responsible towards their citizens for, but interestingly, they have taken a thought leadership position in the world because not everybody uh, you know, feels that this is as important as they do. So there is great emphasis on exploring the guidelines that are given to companies in artificial intelligence. And there's actually a certification now for product managers wow. that in AI ethics, and every company is encouraged to do it so that as you're building the product, you not only have received the training for it and maybe some subsidies on the platforms you're using, but you're able to evaluate, is this data biased or not? Mm. Is, is this a, a private or not? Is it secure or not? Is it manipulating people or not? And that makes it a place where over the next 10 to 20 years, you will see a lot of products come out that, the, that people will start demanding. Because after climate change, um, this AI change is going to be a hot topic of contention um, and disagreement. And those countries will do well that have been responsible about it from the start. Yeah, and I, I remember really waking up to this topic when at Salesforce we appointed like a C-level executive who was responsible for the ethics, ethical use of technology. And I thought, wow, we're, we're really entering a new, right. a new stage. 
both exciting, but you know, everything has its risks as well. So just on that topic, like where do you see the gaps in global leadership when it does come to this concept of governance and ethics? Is there any, you know, standouts that you think are important for us to understand? You know, it actually does come down to leadership because if you look at the stock market, it has traditionally punished people and companies that have dared to invest time into ethics or into algorithms that are more explainable, but in fact have slowed down the accuracy uh, of the algorithm or the speed of innovation. So what we're seeing now is people who are leading companies as CEOs who just take a stand that they believe in this. And those principles, just as you were saying with Salesforce, you know, putting that C-suite officer there is such a signal to everybody in the company. That is bold leadership. Mm. And we will see more of that just as we're, it took us a long time to come to a point where, um, you know, ESGs are now considered important when you're making investment decisions as a company. And to be uh, not contributing to climate change is considered important. But that has paved the way for us to move faster on being using AI more broadly, but also mitigating its downside. And I'm very pleased to see that there is much more discussion on this. And at the World Economic Forum, where I'm in one of the future councils, you know, thinking a lot about AI governance, data governance, and digital policy. Like, what is your recourse if an AI says that you're not eligible for parole? Right. Mm. Where should you go? I mean, these are actually quite serious policy questions. Or it comes to your company and you want to delete something. Uh, some countries like, uh, you know, in the European Union, that by law they can. In California they can. But in other states or countries you can't. So these are discussion points that now involve a interdisciplinary team. And that's why it's so wonderful to be in artificial intelligence because it is in everything and you get exposed to a very multidisciplinary team, lawyers, anthropologists, policymakers, UX yeah. designers. So I, I'm having a blast. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. And, and when you uh, talk to me about your day, you know, yeah. your expectation when you hear of someone who's a specialist in AI is, you know, you're going to have this person come in who's a bit of a robot themselves and very <laughs> technical. But like you talk to me about workshops with post-it notes and, you know, that, that actually genuinely starts to bring to life the diversity of how you unpack this whole topic. So bringing it from that really kind of macro global mm. view, let's get a, a little bit practical for our listeners because I think, you know, at a, at a high level we get AI, but yeah. if you were to kind of give the first, second, third steps, mm. the baby steps of people that may be leading businesses or teams, how do we start to lean into AI and make it practical in our businesses in our day-to-day? -day? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. So the first thing is when we go in um, as outside advisors, you could have an inside innovation group that does exactly the same thing. You need to think about, um, you know, every company has some vision for where it wants to be, but then you have to get down to the granular details. And usually you prioritize the pain points or the goals of the company that it really cares about, that would contribute to its a transformation over the coming years into something that remains competitive globally. Once you have a use case, let's say you say, well, you know, we have many customers, we're unable to service them well, and we would like customer service to be more efficient. Um, and especially for B2C consumers, that's a, that's a big thing. Yeah. So then, you know, then what you would do is you would say, well, what can I do in three to four months? 
using data and artificial intelligence. So once you've identified and scoped the problem, and believe me, it's not that easy to get people to agree and align around this is a business problem that <laughs> matters to us, and these are the ways we would measure its success. Then you need to, the step two is, well, now there's data related to this. There's data in um, customer service platforms, there's data in Salesforce, there's data in uh, different siloed systems. Now we need to organize this. So some companies, most companies, have all this data lying in different systems. But actually you need to cohere them in a, in a data platform. And the core of this data platform is something called a data lake. And in that you put all your structured and unstructured, your voice and your notes and your voice memos and your pictures, anything you may have, in and, and the structured data from CRMs into this data lake. And then you extract it and you begin to model what, uh, for example, an artificial intelligence chatbot would look like. And that artificial intelligence chatbot will first of all answer 80% usually of the questions that are typically asked and will be able to look at this data and personalize the response to the particular customer. Then for those customers where they have more complex queries, there must be another user experience for them. And the user experience designer is very important. You can have all the smartest AI PhDs working and nobody wants to interact with it. That AI is not going to help anyone. So you have to have a great user experience. The chatbot needs to have a personality. The flow needs to be interesting. The language needs to be formal or whatever it is the company's personality. It has to have a personality. Yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> and then let's say for those 10%, you say, well, these are complicated queries. So this will go to a call center agent. When it goes to a call center agent, the call center agent has an AI assistant. So for example, in insurance, I don't know if you knew this, but one of the questions women ask a lot, pregnant women, is about preeclampsia and whether the insurance covers it or not. Imagine you're seven months pregnant, you're stressed, you, your doctor just told you you have preeclampsia, and you're talking to some young man who's never even heard of this term, who's sitting in a call center, and he's like, okay, wait, and he's like looking around everywhere, um, and you're stressed. Right. Yeah. And then he'll get back to you because what does this mean? He doesn't know. But a chat assisting the chatbot, assistant chatbot to the call center agent can give all that information is milliseconds. Mm. So she may have wanted to speak to a person because she needs that empathetic human touch. But because the human is too busy looking for information, which an AI can do better, that human is not able to serve her properly. Mm. And so uh, that's another thing that you build. So you have, uh, then finally, you're able to measure everything and say, did we have more engagement? Did it take less time? Uh, you know, how many people were served better? And then at the end of four months, uh, you know, you decide, okay, this works. I like it. I don't like it. Mm. If you like it, you say, now I want to roll it out to all my customers. So let's productionize it. The productionizing, it means you integrate it back into some front-end systems in your website, your mobile phone, et cetera. And that is how you do it. it. It doesn't need to cost millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. It doesn't need to be some over-the-top thing. Certainly, there are difficult aspects of this AI. But on the other hand, the customer is always in focus. Um, and and it, everything's measured. If it was simple and worked, that's fine too. Yeah, I think... We, one thing we haven't touched on, which I think is a critical piece of this 21st century team, is talent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I understand you're really passionate about that. Yes. Have we got the right talent to be able to facilitate this type of journey for businesses? 
There is a huge gap in talent. And that's one of the reasons why my firm is in high demand. We, we are a services firm and we specialize in big data and AI. But it, it's been a journey for us as well. Even though we are, you know, um, so many of us in a big network, and there are about seven, eight roles in a data and AI project. If you really get to there's a data architect, data engineer, there's the um, data scientist, the AI engineer, the dev uh, DevOps, ML SecOps. I mean, you know, that's just some of the AI roles, and then the AI specialist, NLP, computer vision, or whatever it may be. Um, but I do believe that there are countries are seeing more and more people interested in this, so they are coming up to speed. Um, so we will see this talent gap hopefully closing. I also see that there is um, self-service AI, which is automation, which is embedded in products already, uh, such as, I think it's Einstein with Salesforce, you or you have uh, with Google and Microsoft and others that, that already have AI. So we, are, we always say, if it's already made by a company that's invested hundreds of millions of dollars in it, like you don't want to make it from scratch. So those AI products that are commoditized can be used. And then your job is to kind of connect the dots. And mm -hmm. for that, you don't need to be a deep AI expert. You need a small team, maybe one or two or three. And then you can use these products or have an advisory team come and make a little bit of the custom code. And then you can run it with a reasonably small but elite kind of AI team. And it's very possible to do that. I think that we'll see a lot more of this. Is this something where you see we have to look for future generations to come through this training or do you feel it's transferable skills? I'm assuming it's a combination of both, but I'd love to kind of get your sense on that. Well, you know, it's transferable to the degree that they have the mathematics and computer mm. science background. Then usually if you have an engineering background, you can pick it up because it's all math at the end of the day. Um, but if you don't have that, then you are more at the interface of business and technology or you learn some of the basics so that you can communicate with the AI expert. But of course, the real thing is the future generations. We need to make sure that they're computationally literate. A lot of people come to me and say, everything will be automated. And so why do we need to learn this? That's like saying, you know, we have calculators. So I'm not going to have my child learn any math in school. I mean, that would be just crazy. Yeah. Or, you know, we have Kindles. I mean, you know, or, or people don't, we have movies. So people don't need to learn how to write anymore or read anymore. The fact is you understand the world around you better when you understand some fundamental things that move the digital economy. Yeah. The ability to read, write, uh, do basic math, and learn basic coding is fundamental to understanding how the world around you is working. Without that, you lose confidence. The moment you lose confidence, it's game over. Mm. And that's so unfair. I see so many fabulous people who shrink back at board meetings because they just don't understand even a little bit mm. of how technology is disrupting their business. And if they just took a course or just read something regularly, they wouldn't feel that way. And it's very unfair on them and unfair on the company uh, because that's both your responsibility to yourself and to your employer or to your employees to learn what's necessary about the world around you. And I think this is a, a beautiful transition to a topic that is very close to both of our hearts, which is women in tech. Yes. Um, I had the beautiful privilege about a year ago now uh, to 
be a part of a STEM project in girls' school. And I didn't think I really had a unique story to tell these beautiful, you know, high school students. And the just the story of working in technology at Salesforce and various other businesses, the eyes were just lit up like, is this possible? And it, it really, you know, identified for me that what I thought was you know, normal and probably what you now think is, is is actually something we need to make more accessible and and more part of the norm for these next generations coming through, not to mention, you know, people that are in business today. So I know this is a huge area of where you invest your time. Do you want to just share with the audience a few of the initiatives and your perspectives on women in tech from, you know, young generations through as well? This is, as you said, very close to my heart. For over seven years now in Singapore, I have a charity called 21st Century Girls. It was based on an incident where I was at a kid's hackathon and this young girl came and she was doing some electronics and I was so pleased. But then uh, her mother came and pushed her away and put her son in front of me and said, you know, she doesn't like this stuff. And the little girl went away crying and and the brother, bless his soul, was was good, but not as good as his sister. (laughs) And then the grandmother um, brought the girl back and they both did it. It made me realize there's a cultural bias. Mm. There's a cultural bias against girls in tech. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard for us as a society to shake that off. And the worst part about this is when you do that to a girl, she loses confidence. And, I, and I've said this before, confidence is the way where you think you can solve anything because you have the basics and nobody's ever questioned your ability. I mean, I fail at 90% of things I do, but I have no fear of failure. Yeah. I'll try anything. You know, tell me to build a rocket, I'll do it. <laughs> um, because I, I, luckily, because of my parents, I just, they said, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And, um, and so I started 21st Century Girls and we teach kids, both boys and girls, but particularly girls, the basics of coding. We have a program with Infocom Media Development Authority um, and Google in Singapore where we teach thousands of kids with Saturday kids teaching them. Um, and the kids love it. They learn the basics of coding, but also problem solving through coding. And really that is the key. It's about problem solving. It's another language to solve problems. Just like writing music is a language to express your creativity as much as painting Mm. is or writing a novel is or cooking is. It's no different than that. Um, And then for girls in polytechnics, uh, I started uh, the Empower program in which they come together and we teach them the basics of artificial intelligence. And mind you, it's not like they don't, they don't read, read case studies. They learn how to code and they learn statistics and it's painful at times, but they come. They come every Saturday for three hours in the morning and they don't need to. It's completely optional and they come for 10 weeks and after that they give a presentation and they have the widest smiles. Uh, a survey at the beginning often shows they don't feel they'll do as well as the boys, even though the opportunities are equally open to them. But after that they say, well, we are very confident of our future. Wow. And that's what counts, not how good they are, because some of them are very good and some of them it's not their passion. Mm. But the fact is, regardless, they know that they'll need it in whatever job they do and they're not afraid of it. Mm. Um, and that is the key. We're now in our fifth run. I'm digitizing the course. It means the world to me to have more girls. I'm still, even in my own firm, one of the few women um, and it really bothers me. And mm. I see this everywhere. But um, if you look at the numbers in Singapore, they are climbing up. More and more women are going into STEM and engineering and computer science. Yeah. 
I think we'll see the landscape change. My own daughter and son are both very techie. So <laughs> I would expect that. <laughs> yeah. Mummy's biased. <laughs> I'm very proud. I um I find International Women's Day, you know, lots of lots of hype, but it is a fantastic opportunity to pause, right? For this year, we've just kind of had it a week or two ago in the backdrop of what you've just shared about all those amazing initiatives that you drive. And I do want to pause to just honour you for a second because if women don't forge ahead as examples, then why would any of the, the next generation have that hope that that's something they could do? So I really do want to make sure we pause and honour that. But when you did stop at this International Women's Day, what were the couple of the, like key things that you really reflected on and, and what you're taking into this next year, you know, amongst that backdrop? I think there's just one sentence that I tell uh, myself, that I tell um, my children, that I tell all the girls that I have, which is like, you can do it. Yeah. You know, you can, you, but you got to upskill yourself. Mm. And this is the key. Even I need to, by the way, just this morning, I was telling my class fellow from Harvard, I was like, yeah, I'm so bad at this, so bad at that. And, and I am, let's be honest. I have to learn it. I have to upskill myself. And that's fine. And there are plenty of people in my firm who said, you know, Dr. Aisha, you know, you really shouldn't comment on this. You don't know it well. And I'm like, you're right. I don't, <laughs> you know, so, but I can do it. I can learn it. Mm. And when we talk about mentorship, you know, I always say, I can't hug you to a better career. It's very important that we put in the work and we're not afraid of it um, and be fearless. And there, it's understandable. Yeah. AI and technology is not rocket science. You can understand the basics. And sometimes the basics is all you need. And so I would encourage everyone listening to this, especially the girls <laughs> and women, um, you know, Pick up that book, take that course on Coursera, um, you know, put the Google alert on AI plus fintech plus customer service, whatever you like, and just get into the groove. And pretty much you'll soon, you'll be at a dinner table and you'll be like, well, I think AI can help with this. And you'll say you that you have a voice, right? That's the big part. <laughs> yes. And you have a voice already. So you should not, you should amplify it. I like that. And I think we need to be scared. Stop being scared of this whole yes. different, like, we can acquire different skills. We're never perfect, right? We we have this concept at Salesforce called Trailhead, which is mm. this online learning platform free for everyone. And the stories that we get out of this of people that used to be in X, you know, different industry came onto Trailhead, taught themselves how to right. code on the platform. And now they're, you know, amazing administrators, blazing trails in certain industries. And you go, hey, we're never, we're never a finished product. And I think sometimes because we've been taught as females the perfection and, you know, all of these things you've got to stand up for. I love, I, I had a, I had parents pretty similar to you where mm -hmm. I was like, Jess, you can do anything to sometimes it was like, okay, calm down, Jess, you know, but <laughs> I think it's, it, it's so true. Just yeah. consistently telling yourself that you can do anything is so important. Again, similar to my question mm -hmm. about how you make AI practical, uh, for our listeners today, I want to make leaning into women mm -hmm. and this whole topic of women in tech practical. What are two things that people could think about in their worlds that could make a difference to this, whether they have women in their lives or, or you know, in their families? What do you think it is that, that we could do practically to, to change this? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to be part of a network yourself. Mm. Because then it's not that, you know, I'm not doing much for girls as much as they're doing for me. It's very mutual. And there are some very good groups out there. Uh, just in Singapore, women in fintech, women in data science, it's all over the world. 
And you know, they always used to talk about the boys club. Guess what? There's a girls club now and we help really? each other with <laughs> business, with ideas. Um, and it's fantastic. Mm. So the first thing is empower yourself yeah. by being part of this awesome community. And, and secondly, I think it's um, very important to push in your company for more diversity. If you are either it's a product that you're doing or you are talking to leadership or you're just looking at the numbers. You know, uh, in Singapore, we have a women in tech movement and there's a pledge that we sign on three things we'll do, uh, whether it is advocating for hiring more women or just for trying to hire and look for women, um, whether it is making sure that there's gender diversity in product design and I'm very specifically talking about tech now. Mm. Um, and this is an ongoing effort. It doesn't mean, and even in my own firm, like I talked to my co-founder who has HR, I said that we need more women in AI, and it's okay if we don't have 50% tomorrow, but we need to keep moving towards that. And that alertness and awareness, unless we advocate for it, it will go unnoticed. So mm. be vocal. But um, and be part of the community so you can enjoy it as well. Totally. I feel like we've come a really nice 360 because we started talking about humanization and yes. technology and not to be biased here, but like, you know, women bring a very different perspective around that human element. So yeah. when we're developing products or when we're working with technology, it's not just about having, you know, the skills there, but it's about having the voice. Yes. Um, because I think particularly when you're developing concepts around AI or the, the way that we're going to engage with customers through technology, you can't just look at it in a robotical sense, right? You need that human element to really make sure that it cuts through and, and is impactful. So I think women bring a very diverse voice to that, which I'm sure is part of what you're passionate about as well. So I think let's let's kind of move on to something, a little project of yours that I am really excited for. You're writing a book. Yes. Or a, <laughs> tell us a little bit, of a, bit more about this. I'm writing a book with my husband. It's called You Plus AI. And I go to so many conferences and I give many, many interviews and, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And I'm talking about trends and I'm talking about business. And inevitably, after every interview, podcast, conference, speech, people come up to say and say, but you know, what about me? What do you, how does this apply to me? And I realized that there's nothing out there. It's all about how AI is going to disrupt work and disrupt businesses and disrupt cities. But what can you do to take the bull by the horns and make it work for you? And that's what it boils down to when we talk about human agency, mm. which is what is your ability to, first of all, make sure it does not impinge on your agency. So if you're watching YouTube and it's giving you news feeds and it's kind of creating a filter bubble where you're only seeing certain things, then you're in a way being manipulated in, your, in what you see. So you want to have your agency, you want to be aware of how this data is affecting you and you need your data protected. And the second thing is how do you use it to amplify your agency? Whereas you had certain dreams in life now, if you, how would you use AI? Kind of like the question you asked me to actually um, achieve your personal goals, whether they may be work-related or others. And it's a, it, you know, and I have six chapters that talk about that, that talk about um, how to protect your data, how to understand what you're working with, and then how to use it for your health, for your health amplification, but mm. also your work amplification. And then the last thing is, like, what should your relationship with AI be? And I think that's a very 
nuanced thing because now it's invisible. It'll be everywhere. You're going to live with it. And um, my conclusion after working in AI for so many years, <laughs> decades really, is that you need to keep a bit of distance from it. Um, and if it's a relationship and it's going to become social in nature because they're going to have voices, they're going to be in your home, your microwave is going to be talking to you, you know, I mean, um, then you need to be able to have periods of time where you have a little bit of distance and you're not so dependent on it that it becomes toxic and you are, your whole view is shaped by what it's saying and recommending. Mm. And we will see this. We will see like Wi-Fi free zones in parks that one goes to or rooms, which are buildings that will be designed with no AI in them. Um, and till that happens, we have to kind of exert that discipline on ourselves. It's kind of like you don't want your children playing games all the time. You know, yeah. you, want to, you want them to see the iPad not as a passive consumable, but as something that they can make something with. And it mm. should be the same with AI. When I look at a pencil, I don't expect it to start jumping around and dancing for me. I know I have to pick it up and write something. And I want to look at an AI and think, how can I partner with AI and do something as yeah. opposed to what's it going to do to me? And I'll just be there like, a, you know, paralyzed in fear and awe. Yeah. When can we get it? <laughs> What's the plan? Next year, we're next year. almost halfway done. So um, early next year, it's coming out. And I'm really excited about it because to be honest, um, it, it matters to me. This is what I hear, yeah. in, whatever I do. And I don't know some of these answers. And sometimes there are no answers, but this is my recommendation based on my experience. Now, this is incredibly off topic, but what is writing a book with your husband like? <laughs> it's easier now that we have been married for so long. When we f first wrote a book together called Hybrid Reality, um, you know, I was much more sensitive to his criticism. Like he'd say the grammar was wrong and I'd just like get in a huff about it. But now we know our strengths. So we're writing different parts of the chapters okay. together. And um Interestingly, you know, he has actually now a company that does a lot of AI as well, even though his, his whole background is in geopolitics wow. and political science, but he, he's been using data, so he understands the space better. And um, I think we have a really good partnership, that, and, and I'm less sensitive to criticism, <laughs> which is... What a journey. We've yes. all been there, uh, but uh, well done. I think, yeah, w when you told me you were writing it with your husband, I was like, that's that's awesome. You know, you have a different different ideas and stories and aspects coming to the, the one the one story. So I'm definitely going to be one of the first to read that. I think it's, it's totally relevant. And as you said, I don't think there are many of us that stop sometimes to go, oh, hold on. Yes. I'm being influenced here. Right. <laughs> I ridiculously have a new Apple Watch that yes. my husband bought me for Christmas and I'm on Zoom calls and the Apple Watch picks up what I'm saying. I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it is, but you know, it's sometimes a good awakening yes. to go, oh, hold on, I'm, I'm actually being influenced here and I need to, to your lens, like just take a step back and go, is this actually what I personally think or am I being led by this? So very, very interesting, I guess, perspective on, on AI and I'm looking forward to that. Now, this is the surprise part of the, the podcast. I'm, okay. an, I'm an aspiring podcast host. I want to be the Brene Brown and I love her <laughs> podcast. And in her podcast, she does a rapid fire. Yes. Have you heard of this? Have you listened no, to it? Well, basically not. the theme is I'm yes. going to go through five sentences okay. and whatever comes to you straight away when I start the sentence, you're going to end it. Okay. And this is how we're going to say goodbye to our listeners. All so right. are you ready? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am most grateful for. My children. The last meal that really satisfied me was? Um, 
I'm thinking about it. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm. I really enjoy all the food. Uh, I'm Punjabi, so. <laughs> so and I, I, I guess we actually went to Odette recently, which oh, is a you know three Michelin star, and it was, it was not just the food; it was just the ambiance and the presentation and the chef special was amazing. Sense, bit of a yes. sensory experience. I think isn't that's it? the key. The last book that made you stop to think. Atomic Habits by James Clear. I, I realized it's all in the tiny tweaks we make every day. That's where progress happens. I wish society would change. It, dot, dot, is dot. that a question? Like Sentence. End it. Ah, I wish society would change the elitism of, um, you know, certain kinds of education, such as whether you went to an Ivy League or not, or whether you know <laughs> machine learning or not i wish society would change um thinking that everybody is not capable of understanding the basics we need for each one of us to succeed in the 21st century economy i want us all to bring down to basics and give everybody an equal chance to participate in these high-tech industries and i think everybody is more than capable of doing it i like that and we're going to end with i'm most excited for I'm most excited for all the companies that are moving towards big data platforms. I think we have this gold mine. Every company has this gold mine um, of data that if they use responsibly, they can literally transform the lives of their customers, serve, serve them so much better, and in particular in healthcare. Mm. I'm most excited about that. We have healthcare clients. You can save someone's life. You can mm. prevent disease. You can have give children and parents and grandparents more time with each other. That's healthy. You can make aging better. And that's just beyond awesome. Yeah, that is really cool. Well, just so everyone listening remembers, what is this uh, company that you're leading and yes. where, can, where can they find you? Well, my company is Addo AI. Addo actually means to add in Latin. So it means okay. add AI. <laughs> so addo AI, is, the URL is www.addo.ai. And we are a company that specializes in building data platforms and then helping companies use these data platforms to um, apply machine learning and automate and optimize their services. And products. I'd also recommend everyone following you on Instagram because <laughs> I have to say again, honoring what you've what you stand for and what you do. So thank you for everything that you are doing, whether it be women in tech or forging ahead with AI. I think you tell a really amazing story. So thank you and thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs>